0: That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your throne of grace, we're cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus. And we humbly ask you to open our minds and hearts to hear of your sovereign power, your infinite wisdom, and your unfailing grace that secures the promises on which we have entrusted our eternal future. Father, I pray you will gently but firmly show us our weakness. Strengthen us for your work of conforming us to be like Christ. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth for your people from the meditations of my heart from your word will be acceptable in your sight. Father, show us Christ. That's our prayer this morning. And we make it in Jesus' name, amen. In Dante's Divine Comedy, Purgatorio is where sinners are punished, and Dante describes those who lived in the sin of envy as perched precariously on the edge of a precipice. Their eyes are sewn shut with leaden wires as they are cloaked in leaden cloaks. And they lean on each other in their blindness to keep from falling into the abyss. They're no longer envious. They're simply miserable, and they're miserable forever. Envy is from the Latin word invidia. It means no sight. And Dante's description then is of the envious plodding along under these cloaks of lead, eyes shown shut, Is fitting because envy starts with the eyes. They're blind. They're blind to the blessings that God has given to them, but they have failed to nurture in this life. Envy says, I desire this, or I love that, or I want to be like them. So it's a form of worship. And it's actually the only sin that violates two of the Ten Commandments. Idolatry and the Tenth Commandment against coveting. So it's been well said. The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. So I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 37. This is the final toledoth. That's that Hebrew word, that is translated as, these are the generations of, and then it has the patriarch of that particular generation. This is the tenth and final Toledoth in the book of Genesis, the final, the, uh, the tenth division. And because of the lengths of Joseph's story being the longest of any character in the Bible other than Jesus... Because of the great truths that are expressed in his life, and because he is one of the great shadows that point us to Christ, we've given Joseph his own mini-series, a mini-series within this longer series of Genesis. So we're calling him a man for all seasons. That describes someone who has the strength of character to consistently do the right thing regardless of. Of any consequences. This particular message I've titled Bitter Flowers to describe how the envy that we will see in Joseph's or Jacob's sons will ultimately produce a tangled garden of bitter flowers that became one of the greatest threats to the progression of the Abrahamic promise. And it will take 80 years to untangle all of the bitterness that we see that begins here in this chapter. But God will do that in spite of or despite of sin because God is faithful to his promise and he will be faithful until the very end. So please stand, I'm going to read a portion of our text, beginning in Genesis 37, verse 2. So stand if you are able, and hear the word of God. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of these other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Hear the word of God. Let's apply it to our hearts. Please be seated. The one big idea I want to draw out for us this morning is again on the top of your handout, and it's this. Envy destroys relationships and people as it grows a garden of bitterness that flowers with sin, division, and death. We're going to look at four seasons of this garden growth this morning. First, how envy becomes a root of bitterness. Second, how bitterness produces leaves of hatred. Third, we'll see this garden produce a variety of fruits called sin. And fourth, how envy's bitter flowers then bring division, discontent, and even death. So root, leaves, fruit, and flowers is what we're all about this morning. Good to- a good topic for spring. Proverbs 14.30 says that envy rots the bones. And Hebrews 12.15 says that, it gives a warning that a root of bitterness can spring up and cause trouble and defile many. And it's ignoring these words of wisdom that brings Joseph's brother's to the very brink of murder. Now, the problems begin with Joseph's, or Jacob's love for Joseph. Now, we all want the favor of our parents, don't we? We'd love to have our parents' favor. But in Jacob's family, parental failure was not very common. Parental favor was not very common, except in the case of Joseph. He was the son of Jacob's old age. So his brothers envied Joseph, and they began to hate him, refusing even to speak to him as their envy grew of his favoritism. But there's also a bad report and a particular robe that adds to their envy. Now, the bad report and the colorful robe are the result of something that occurred earlier in this family. And it served to change the entire dynamic of Jacob's family and to set these events that we're going to look at in motion. It happened back in Genesis 35, 22. And back then we are told that when the family lived in Bethel, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel, that's Jacob, heard of it. Now, the event is stated simply in chapter 35, but what's not stated was the result of Reuben's sin. It dishonored his father. It was such a terrible sin that it disqualified him from being the firstborn son and the privileges that came with it, and it disqualified him from receiving the Abrahamic blessing. Chronicles is the genealogy of Israel. And in 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2, puts these events in perspective. It says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So what Genesis 35 doesn't say, First Chronicles does. Jacob had the right to do so, and he did. He gave Reuben's firstborn authority to Joseph. So when verse two in our text says that Joseph brought a bad report against the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, he was not tattling. He was truth telling. That was his role as second in command of the family. And the robe of many colors was the sign of that position. It was like a royal robe. The Hebrew wording translated many colors is better understood as ankles and long sleeves. That means it was a a long tailored robe down to the ankles with long sleeves. It was in contrast to a worker's normal tunic, which was short-sleeved or even sleeveless and went to the knees when it enabled them to work. A long-legged, long-sleeved tunic was a sign of authority. That person didn't work. They were an overseer. So, his coat of many colors then is better understood as this coat of authority. And the good fortune and the authority that Joseph had in getting Reuben's status because of Jacob's favoritism is why we see such animosity and envy growing in his brothers. You see, envy grows a root. That when it's watered, it makes bitter leaves. And that's what we see in the next set of verses, verses 5 through 11. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. He told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father, it says, kept the saying in mind. So the brother's envy now is being watered by Joseph's ch- sharing these two dreams. Reuben's sin, Jacob's favoritism, Joseph's robe. These were things that were on an earthly plane. But the dreams, they elevated him much higher, to a completely different plane. The dreams were an entirely new level. You see, in the ancient Near East, people had a different worldview than we do today. Our worldview rests on two pillars, rationalism and materialism. And we have come to believe that we understand our reality our, from, from the farthest reaches of our cosmos to the most minute workings at the subatomic level, rationalism and materialism. Our world is a closed universe, but the worldview of Joseph time rested on two different pillars, creation And the fall. Creation meant that there was a creator, a creator outside of this reality, far beyond it, far more powerful. And the fall explained the human condition of sin. So Joseph's brothers knew that the dreams were from God. Because of their worldview, they meant that God had chosen uh, Joseph to receive the blessing that had been promised to their great-grandfather Abraham. And we've seen how Abraham's offspring have believed and desperately wanted this blessing. We've seen it in the envy that rose up almost immediately in in, in Sarah and then Ishmael and then Rebecca and then Esau, then Jacob himself, and then Rachel, Leah, and now these brothers. They know this is a treasure that's promised by the sovereign living God. And the one with this blessing is the one who is on the path to being a true great nation a world leader. And the dreams confirmed God's choice was Joseph, not his brothers. He, he had what they could not, and they hated him for it. This brings us to our first fill-in. Envy is discontent with God's gifts to you and to others. It's discontent with God's gifts to you and to others. Envy whispers, God, I'm not satisfied because you didn't give me what I want. And then envy speaks, God, I'm not satisfied with the position and the gifts that you have assigned to me in this world. But ultimately, envy shouts, Give me your throne, God! Let me run my life! Give me the blessings that will make me glorified! And it's for these reasons that envy is the sin that directly breaks two of the Ten Commandments and is instrumental in breaking another. Envy and its twin, coveting, are dangerous because they seem like they're private sins. No one can see you being envious of your coworker's promotion or coveting his speedboat, but they bring a growing bitterness that eventually overflows into sin. You can't keep this inside because it rots the bones. It will work itself out. And that's what we see next. This garden grows. And in verses 18 and following, we see the bitter fruit revealed. Now, in his letter to the Christians in Galatia, Paul encourages them, he says, to walk in the Spirit. And then he lists the works of the flesh in the previous verse, to contrast those with the fruits of the Spirit. So prominent in this list in Galatians 5.20 are envy and its partners, idolatry, jealousy, and hatred. And that's what we see in verses 18 through 32. The fruit is revealed as a murderous plot. Fratricide, killing of a family member, Joseph's brothers, they're they're pasturing the sheep near Shechem when Jacob becomes concerned for their welfare. Look at verse 13. Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. But the brothers weren't there. So Joseph asks a stranger. He tells them they went to Dothan. And there Joseph finds them. But they see him first. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. The plan reveals just how discontented they are with God's gifts and has grown now into really a hatred of God expressed in their contempt for the dreams they know God has given to Joseph. Now, Fortunately, or providentially maybe, before they can act, Reuben offers an alternative. Rather than bloody their hands with Joseph's blood, he suggests throwing them into a waterless pit and letting the hot sun and the desert air do the work. Now, Reuben probably planned to return later, probably to, to make up for the dishonor he had caused his father by rescuing the favorite son. But unfortunately, or providentially, before he returned, another opportunity arose. Now, the brothers, meanwhile, were, it's the height of callousness. They're having lunch within earshot of their brother at the bottom of a waterless well pleading for them to let him out. But he's at the bottom of the well, probably kind of muted so you can, uh, you can ignore it. So they're having lunch. And by chance, or maybe it's Providence, a caravan appears on the horizon. It's some Midianite traders, it says, are en route to Egypt. And as they approach, (coughs) Judah (coughs) sees a business opportunity. Look at verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is a brother." Funny time to state that one, isn't it? Our own flesh. Yes, Judah, you're getting to the core of the issue. And his brothers listened to him. So they lift Joseph up out of the pit and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. That was the going price for a slave. And the Midianites take Joseph and off they go to Egypt. You see, envy that brought the brothers to the brink of murder becomes our next fill-in. I want you to consider this one carefully. The self-worship of envy collapses into self-hatred, and it grows into hatred of others and bears fruit as hatred for God. Envy is self-worship, and when we can't get what we want or someone else gets what we want, that collapses then into envy or hatred of others, being desirous of others. But really, at the bottom of it all is the fact that God has made us and gifted us as he has seen fit, so our envy is actually hatred of God. God's favor set Joseph apart far more powerfully than Jacob's favor, and it shattered the brother's self-worship. Before his dreams, Joseph's dreams, they may have thought that they had a chance for the blessing. They were working hard for their father, but God had made it clear it's Joseph who gets the blessing. So their self-worth was then shattered, And they had no hope of it, so they channeled their frustration at Joseph and then by extension their frustration toward God. They hate God's choice, which is to hate God. And thinking that killing Joseph can prevent God's will pits them against God and reveals the greatest and really the most common human folly of all, to think that we can be God. Now the 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 interesting thing is that the people of Israel had this story for over a thousand years when Jesus comes on the scene and they are exhibiting the same folly that Joseph's brothers exhibited. So Jesus told them a parable to the religious leaders of Israel. He said, you're making the same mistake Joseph's brothers made. And the parable is called the Parable of the Talents, and is found in Luke 20. You don't need to turn there, but listen as I read what Jesus said. A man planted a vineyard and let it out, or rented it, to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. It's almost as if Joseph's brothers are speaking through the tenants in this story, isn't it? Luke says the religious leaders knew Jesus was talking about them, and it strengthened their resolve to kill him. They didn't... They, they didn't like that those that God had sent to guide Israel. Who was that? That was the prophets. They wanted to lead Israel themselves. They wanted to be the ones who determined their course through history. They particularly hated Jesus because like Joseph's dreams, Jesus's miracles confirmed that he was the heir. And because he was... And because they hated God's plan for them, thereby hating God, they put God to death. So we see here that, that how envy results in a growing bitterness that grows into hatred that eventually bears this fruit of sin, and it comes from a hatred of God and a love of self. And that's why the sin of envy is not just one of the kind of private sins, the respectable sins Jerry Bridges used to call them. And it's not missing the mark, which is what the Greek word for sin translates at. Envy is cosmic treason. It's shaking your fist at God. How foolish is that? And that brings us then to the bitter flowers of envy, which is division. In verse 29, Reuben returns to the pit, but Joseph's gone. And as the oldest, he's responsible. So he tears his clothes, a sign of mourning, and he wonders aloud, how will I face my father? But the brothers have a great idea. They have Joseph's robe. So they dip the tunic in blood and send it. They didn't take it themselves. They sent it, the text says, back to Joseph so that the blood and the tunic, he would draw the obvious conclusion. A wild beast must have killed Joseph in the wilderness. Then look at verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Only Jacob weeps for Joseph, but so deep was his grief that no one could comfort him, and that caused an even deeper divide in the family. Now, Reuben's failure as a senior brother divides him from his father. Judah will soon leave to marry a Canaanite woman, dividing him from the family, and the remaining brothers will constantly worry that one of them may accidentally tell the truth. So you see the division going on here? It's just divided this whole family. This envy grows bitter flowers that bring division and discontent and death and death. Today we see these, these flowers of envy in the division in how our country, the people were once divided into conservatives and progressives. Remember that simple divide? Conservatives and progressives red, and blue. Those who drink Coca-Cola, those who drink Pepsi. But now, with the idea of intersectionality, our country is divided into hundreds of oppressed groups who now are claiming that some sort of retribution needs to be made for them. No longer progressives and conservatives, it's all over the map, isn't it? We see envy's flowers of discontent in the 54% rise in cosmetic surgery since 2020. And even more alarming, the 300% rise in claimed gender dysphoria by young people since 2017. We find envy's flowers of death in the epidemic of suicide that makes it the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 35. Envy is the renewable energy fueling social media with its limitless opportunities to compare ourselves with carefully crafted feeds from influencers and celebrities on platforms tailored for every broken desire. Envy, the Latin invidia, non seeing, and it's driven by what we see. We do not see the gracious. Blessings that God has given us and who we are, where he has placed us, and what he has given us. Instead, we look out and we see what we don't have instead of seeing what we do. And the engine behind all of this that results in a 58% increase in cosmetic surgery, a 300% increase in gender dysphoria, and an epidemic of suicide is because we're comparing ourselves constantly to other people who carefully craft that image to make you want to be that way and to frustrate you when you can't. And when you do that, you're telling God, I don't like what you gave me. I want what I want. Envy is killing us. So is there any good news? For Christians, the answer, of course, is yes. Genesis 37 is preserved not only to show us the danger of envy, but how God uses human envy and other sins for his purposes. Let's circle back. Circle back to uh, verses 13 and 14. And Israel said to Joseph... Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Joseph did, Here I am. And Jacob said, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Israel was right to be worried about his sons because they were near Shechem. That's the place. Where Simeon and Levi tricked the men, burned the town, killed all the people, and took all their goods. And at that time, Jacob said to him, "You've made me a stink to these people." And they fled because if the Pezrites and the and the Canaanites rise up against them, I and my household will be destroyed. That's why they fled. Now the brothers are back there. They're in the midst of hostile territory. So Jacob sends his favorite son to see if they're safe. Now it was a four-day trek from the valley of Hebron to this very hostile territory. And when Joseph arrived, he couldn't find his brothers, so he continued to search until he found them. And when he did, they grabbed him and tried to kill him. It was an outright rejection of Jacob's love for them. So now let's consider some parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Jacob sent his favorite son to a hostile land out of concern for his children. God the Father sent his only son into a world hostile to him to seek and find his children. Jacob, or Joseph, left home in the valley of of Hebron and traveled four days. Jesus left the unimaginable treasures of heaven to cross an infinite gulf between there and our physical world to seek and save the law. Jesus or Joseph's brothers rejected him when he arrived. John 1:11 says, "Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him." Joseph's brothers sold him for the price of a slave, 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was betrayed by his friends for a similar price, inflation, 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit to die. Jesus was nailed to a cross and did die. Joseph will eventually be raised to the right hand of Pharaoh and given dominion over a great earthly kingdom. Jesus will also be raised, but not to reign over a passing earthly kingdom, but to reign and rule over a kingdom of righteousness that will never end. You see, the Old Testament is a time of God's revelation of promise, revelation of promise. It's a time of shadows, these faint lines of hope, the Abrahamic promise, the Davidic promise. You know, the the law given to the Sinai, the Sinaiic covenant. These are faint lines that continue to point forward. And Joseph is one of the greatest shadows as the life of this man for all seasons shows us the righteousness that points forward to the one who will fulfill all righteousness. So Joseph is one of a long line of Old Testament shadows that build one upon another, upon another, upon another, until they lift high the name of Jesus. The New Testament is the time of God's revelation of fulfillment. The shadows take on substance and stand here before us clearly in the, as the as Son of God takes on human flesh. And he comes and defeats the forces behind all these bitter flowers of human sin. He now reigns from heaven as he he cultivates a true and living garden temple. One that he is bringing through his church made up of the citizens who are given righteousness who will one day live fully satisfied without a hint of discontentment or sin anywhere. They'll look upon the face of God and Jesus Christ and worship him in pure joy and continual and constant thanksgiving for what God has given each of us. Which brings us to our last fill-in. Envy's garden of bitter flowers is destined to die in the withering light of the glorious Return of Jesus. It was great to sing the Golden City, wasn't it? Envy's garden of bitter flowers is destined to die in the withering light in the glorious return of Jesus. That's our hope. Now, the Israelites, they found hope through even their darkest days, a time when their culture was seeming to be crumbling around them. They took took comfort and hope in hearing how God's hand on Joseph, their great hero, had saved them from oblivion in the past to become the great nation that was blessed by God. And even though they were often entangled in the bitter flowers of envy, think of the book of Judges, God continued to love them and use them to fulfill His promise to Abraham. And Joshua 23 says that promise was fulfilled. But in John 10:16, Jesus said this: "I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd." And what he meant by that is the full promise to Abraham was the blessing to every tribe and people and language and nation. After his ascension to the right hand of power, Jesus now is using his church to bring that full blessing of Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, to bring that full blessing of Abraham slowly and surely to all people. So like the nation of of Israel, the church is often entangled in these bitter flowers of envy and sin, both inside and outside the church. But God cannot be stopped. He will complete is redeeming and restoring work. So as we wait, we wrestle with our envy and discontent because this world is awash in it and we're constantly being dragged back to it. Israel found hope in their hero, Joseph. So how much more hope do we have in the hero of all heroes, the king of all kings and the lord of all lords? So we recognize in the strength of the spirit the futility of envy, and we point its dangers out to others And we do our best to keep from those bitter flowers by finding contentment in what God has given us. And it's not an easy task. Envy changes throughout our lives. When we're young, we envy things people have, toys. We grow into the adolescent years and afterwards, and then we envy how others look or how others are smarter than we are, or how others are promoted over us. Then later in life, as we get older, we envy not so much how people look, but how much money they have, or how many cars they have, or how big of a house they have. So envy changes over time. But we need to remain aware especially in a world of constant advertisement and, com- and comparison we need to um, remain aware and we need to pray and ask the spirit to uh, to show us those those seeds of envy that could grow into bitter roots bitter roots bringing forth those leaves of hatred hatred bringing forth that fruit of sin and that sin dividing us pray and contemplate the good wise, and graciously given gifts that God has given to us. For the source of our contentment is knowing that we have a reward far beyond which we can possibly imagine that we will one day achieve when we hear the well-done and good faithful service enter into your Father's reward, and we will look at it and say, it's perfect for me. Perfect for me. Thank you, God. Let's pray.